Uh, we're going to ask our brother Sterrett to come and bring his final message and song, and then uh, our brother Martin's just going to take over the meeting then after that. Thank you. Your lamb 
lamentation then will be my soul is lost at last then come sinner come salvation's free to all it may be the last time you'll ever hear the call then come sinner come salvation's free to all it may be the last time you'll ever hear the call Amen. sincere thanks to your brother billy for ministering in song I know the Lord has blessed and will use those messages even to the salvation of precious souls. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn please in the Old Testament to the book of Job? And there's a little phrase, although I make mention of quite a number of verses from this chapter. But there's a little phrase I want to leave with you. It's found in verse 14. Just before I do that, I would just uh, concur with the words of welcome that you have received. And just in case you weren't listening during the announcements, as most people switch off and even myself sitting there, your thoughts are on the message. But if you've missed the welcome, if perhaps you got through the door quickly out of the cold and got to your seat, well, we would always want you to feel very welcome in the house of the Lord. We're glad to see you. I want to thank you personally for joining with us for the first meeting of the two-week gospel campaign and I trust that this will not be your last time coming to the mission. You put in the appearance and then you can just then get a name of one who's been to the mission. Well, we would like you to continue coming. I think it's two weeks that you could sacrifice. Our brother talked about uh, the house of God, about putting up and uh, laying aside things and so on and so on. But, you know, I feel strongly that you should uh, sacrifice certain things, put them away and give yourself for two weeks to this gospel campaign. I certainly will personally in prayer and in preparation give myself to the mission. I've already been doing some outreach. It hasn't been in Kaiduff. I have another mission after I finish and helping out with. And we've already some 900 homes visited. I intend not just to be lazy, but uh, there will be a night I'll give my testimony. It's the last Friday night of the mission. Uh, I have a friend who does some printing and he always prints cards for me, free of charge, by the way. I have a thousand here. I'm not asking you to give them out. I'm not even asking you to come and help me to do that. Myself and another man will come. If you tell me the areas to go to, because I do not know Carrie Duff one bit, and you can tell me where you want me to go, I mean, another fella, we'll give a few days of the gospel mission to outreach. We'll go round the doors with these invitations, especially for the testimony evening. Sometimes it may be difficult to get them in for uh, the gospel mission, but curiosity uh, for a testimony. And uh, the little card will explain something of my past and just give a little snippet of what the testimony will be about. I brought some with me tonight. They're on the table as you're leaving. If you'd like to take a couple of them or if you want to take more, then feel free. If you say to me, well, I know there are people I could give them to, you mightn't be able to ask them. You may feel a little bit embarrassed or uncomfortable asking some of your friends out to the meeting. Well, why don't you take the card 
and just, here's the way to do it, you know, the best way to do outreach is this. You just say, excuse me, did you get one of them? You see, in Northern Ireland, if you think for one moment, I didn't get one of them. I tried it on outreach. I actually tried it. I was going along and I was saying, gospel track, nobody took it. And I was like, this this young couple coming by and he said, excuse me, did you get one of them? Straight over like a bullet. (laughs) As if, what is that? They didn't get it. Well, that's the way to do it. Did you get one of them? And they said, no, I didn't. No, well, there you are. Now you read that and you get along to that meeting and away you go. Away you go and that's your business done. You've invited them. And the Lord, I believe, will bless you richly. So there are plenty of those. And it doesn't matter if we need some more. I can get more printed. And myself and my young assistant, I'd say, Craig Dennison, he's helping me out in this burn, will be, God willing, for about a year or so. Uh, Craig and I would be very keen for evangelism and outreach. And the two of us every week nearly are out around the doors, around the area, and in other places as well. And uh, there's some other areas that we have to look at as well for outreach but we will be coming here and we will be going round the doors and we will be visiting in the area with the invitations and uh, I assure you that I will put the time and I will put the effort in as well as long as you will and let's be workers together with God and I know the weather hasn't been good and the weather has kept us from getting out the way we want and there's many days I've planned over this past few weeks and uh, the Lord has just overruled and uh, the weather has turned for the worse and we weren't able to get out round the doors. But if the weather permits us, then God willing, we'll be doing some outreach. But please pray for the meetings. And if there's someone you know, and as yet you haven't invited them to the mission, I intend not only to ask you to do that, but I'm telling you now, I'm going to do that as well. And I have some people I trust lined up to come on Tuesday night that are not saved. There are other people as well. I intend to get them out. And then the second week, I intend to get them out to the meeting as well. Two weeks in a row, if I can, get them every night if I could. But it's going to be difficult. If I can get them out once to the mission, I'll be happy. If I can get them the second time, I'll be even more happier. If I can get them every night. But more importantly, we'd love to see them saved. Come to know the Saviour. So do pray, please, for the meetings. Job chapter 18. I better watch my time because our brother was saying about the house of God. He was saying something like, you've got to come up, you've got to go up, you've got to put up, you've got to look up. And I thought he was going to turn to the preacher and say, you've got to shut up. (laughs) And uh, my reputation goes before me. So I see there's a clock here already stuck to the pulpit. I can't remove it. But uh, I'll work off which one's Half seven, that one there. <laughs> we'll, we'll work off the right one. It's uh, Job chapter 18. It's verse 14. There's a little phrase at the end of that verse, a tremendous little phrase, and it says, The king of terrors. That's all it says. The king of terrors. But what a sermon. And what a message. The king of terrors. You have it in your Bible. It's given by inspiration of God. It's Job chapter 18. It's the latter part of verse 14. The king of terrors. Let's just keep our Bibles open, please. And our finger upon that text of scripture. And let's look to the Lord Almighty for help in the ministry of his word. Let us all pray. Father, we come to thee in our Saviour's great name. 
We're looking to thee, O God, that thy presence will fill this house. We pray, O God, that we might have the experience of what Jacob gave to Joseph, his son. Whenever he spoke of the arms of his hand being strong, because the hand Almighty of Almighty God of Jacob was upon him. So, Lord, we pray that thou wouldst put thy hand upon our hand as we seek to serve thee. We ask, O God, that we might be taken out of ourselves and lifted into thy power. Give help in this meeting, we beseech thee. We thank thee, Lord, for the songs of Zion. We were singing together the psalm and the hymns. We thank thee, Lord, for the ministry and song from our brother Billy. And we thank thee, O God, for this little phrase of scripture and this little text that thou hast burdened my heart with. And I ask now, Father, for the preaching of thy word, that the Holy Ghost will come to this meeting house and will do something that natural man cannot do. And that is to lift this meeting out of the natural realm, bringing it into the supernatural with God. Lord, lift this meeting out of the usual, bring it into the unusual by thyself. I ask thee now, Almighty God, that thou wouldst lift this meeting out of the ordinary, bring it into the extraordinary. I ask, Lord, for a sense of thy presence and ask personally now, as I stand before thee and this congregation, I'm a candidate for the infilling of the spirit of the living God. I ask, Lord, now publicly for that which I desperately need to preach, the anointing of thy spirit, I pray, Lord, that I might stand where my Saviour stood, even, Lord, as he opened the book and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. God, grant to me now the infilling of thy Spirit, with wisdom and with power. And, Father, in answer prayer to prayer, save the lost, restore the backslidden, revive thy work. And, Father, in answer now to prayer, Glorify thy son. We ask these things believing in his precious and worthy name. Amen. Whenever we consider that Job has gone through great affliction and difficulties in his life, upon hearing the news of that affliction, three of his best friends, individuals named in this very book in which we're reading, Eliaphas, Bildad and Zophar, they came to sympathize with him and to mourn with him upon hearing that a righteous man was now suffering what they deemed to be the judgment of God. Whenever they met Job, it was an awful sight. He sat upon a dunghill. He lifted a piece of pottery and he began to scrape his body as it oozed from the boils. He sat in silence for seven days and seven nights. Such was the spectacle that those three men could not even speak a single word. At last, whenever opportunity presented itself to these men to say something about Job's condition, they gave to us, I believe, one of the greatest portraits of the end of a sinner's life and the terrible consequences of sin and its misery and torment in that awful place called hell. Describing Job's condition, they wrongly concluded that Job must be a sinner to suffer such judgment from the Lord, that Job must be a hypocrite 
He must be something outwardly appearing to be righteous, but inwardly God has seen his hypocrisy and this judgment upon his body and the loss of his family and all of his wealth is nothing else but the judgment of God. And concluding their remarks, we have under, under inspiration this 18th chapter of the book of Job, whereby Job's friends have formulated one of the greatest portraits and one of the greatest words of counsel concerning the end of the sinner. If you were to paint on the canvas of Holy Scripture a picture of what happens to a man or woman or a young person when they die without God, without hope and without salvation, you will not find more appropriate picture than what one we have been given in Job chapter 18. Now we have no difficulty whatsoever with what they have said. I have no argument or controversy with the conclusions that they have drawn. But the problem I have is this. It is applied to the wrong person. For Job was a righteous man. Job was a believer. Job was a godly individual. And it's wrong for people today, and I'm not going to digress in a gospel meeting into controversy, but it's wrong for people today to say that because some believer is sick, or some believer has something in their life physically wrong, that somehow they have sinned against God. I meet individuals today in the charismatic movement and in extreme forms of Pentecostalism, and they equate sickness with sin. And yet I look at the life of Job and I discover that this man was not a sinner in the sense of living in sin. He was a righteous man and God gave the testimony in chapter 1. Hast thou considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the earth. A righteous and a just man in his generation. One that ensueth hates evil. A perfect man. A mature man. And in all the earth, God paid that testimony to Job. So we do not disagree with his friend's analysis of the condition and the end of a sinner. But what we take issue with is this, that it's applied to the wrong person. But listen to me, when we apply this passage to the right person, it's a fitting description. Of the end of a man or a woman or a young person in this meeting house during this mission. If they were to die without <coughs> God, without hope and without Christ in this world. And that little phrase sums up, I believe, the entire passage. The entire passage all comes together on that little phrase, the king of terrors. The king of terrors. And in the gospel this evening, as God gives me help, I want to consider that phrase with you, the king of terrors. And I want to borrow from the passage to give it its meaning and its explanation. So first of all, consider with me the meaning of this phrase, the king of terrors. Now, we know that terror is an overwhelming feeling of fear and of dread. It's not just being afraid of the dark. It's not just someone who's afraid of spiders. I'm talking about my wife on every department here, by the way. I remember one time we were not long married. And 
My wife was upstairs. She had finished work. She was upstairs changing. She lay down for a little sleep. And within seconds, I was downstairs. I heard this almighty scream. My first thoughts were this. The windows open. Someone's climbed onto that little balcony. There's an intruder in my home. And my wife, whom I've just married, is under threat. And being the macho man that I am not, I phoned the next door neighbor to say, could you? No, I didn't. I raced up those stairs. I didn't know what I was going to meet. But I was sure it's a young fella. He's climbed in. He's robbing. He's doing something. I burst into the room. Fist clenched. Bible thrown to the side, by the way. And all of a sudden, I look round. See nobody. June pointing to the ceiling. There it was. This tiny spider. And I looked and went, what? That, that. The screams of her. I says, a spider? I couldn't believe it. I was shaking. And she's still done that from the very day we're married. She screams the house down whenever there's a spider. And if the windows are open, I'm sure the neighbors are saying, that minister is killing his wife. He's destroying her. So it's not a dread or a fear. I'm telling you now, this is the king of all fear. This is the king of all terror. This is the king of all horror. There is nothing worse than this experience. The Bible tells me it is the king of terrors, plural. The horror of all horrors. The terror of all terrors. And I'm asking the question now, what is it? And what are these men speaking about when they applied it to the wrong person? Because when they apply it to the right person, it has tremendous meaning. And there are some who will argue. And listen, I'm not going to get into controversy in the mission. I believe me, I will stick to the pure gospel. I will not digress. I will not be controversial. And if you want to argue with me, you will find someone who will not be arguing with you. But some people believe that the king of terrors is the devil. And if you want to believe that, then you believe that. I not argue with you because I can tell you now, there's no doubting. That the devil terrorizes the sinner. There is no doubt whatsoever. That the devil knows how to put the fear. Into an ungodly sinner. The devil knows full well. How to terrorize the soul of a man or a woman. He knows how to torment. He knows how to bring fear and dread. And listen. He has schooled in it for centuries. And he's been practicing it for millennia. And as a result of that, he knows and he has schooled and he's been long at this task. But I don't believe the king of terrors is a person. I believe it's an experience. So I rule out the devil, but if you want to put him in, I'll not argue with you. And some people say then it must be death. Quite a number of commentators will say that the king of terrors is death itself. Now listen to me. I would not argue with you if you held to that view. The king of terrors is death. Without a doubt whatsoever, most people fear death. They coin little phrases to take the edge of the thought of dying. I remember being at a funeral one time and I preached on the subject of death. It was appropriate, would you not agree? You wouldn't like me to come to a wedding and preach on the subject of death. 
You won't want me to come to some social event and a happy occasion, some anniversary and bring a little epilogue and speak about death. No, but if I was at a funeral, would you not expect me to speak about death? That's what I did. And somebody walked out of the meeting and said, he's a wee bit morbid, isn't he? He talked about nothing but death. And I thought to myself, well, somebody has just died. And this whole house is mourning the death of an individual. But I'm saying to you now, there's no doubt whatsoever. People like to take the chill and the edge of death. They don't like to think about it. Maybe there's someone here and you don't like the subject. Why? Because it strikes fear into your heart. And it is as if it's the king of all terrors. There are many things you do not fear. And listen to me. I have met men in my lifetime. And in my background, I have met psychopaths. I have met individuals. And I'm telling you now, you couldn't love them if you reared them. And there are other individuals. And I'm telling you now, they're pure evil. But one thing they were afraid of was death. They were afraid to die. They did not fear the British army. They did not fear the RUC as they were known them. They feared no one else, even fellow paramilitaries. They feared no one. But they feared death. They were afraid to die. Why? Because they were guilty. And they knew there was a God in heaven. And there was a judgment day. And there's an awful place called hell. And I'm saying to you right now. If you say it's death, I'll not argue with you. But I feel you haven't gone far enough. Then you say, well, if it's not the devil and death, it has to be hell. Well, listen, we're getting very close. In fact, we're nearly there. And I know we might split the odd hair here. We might go into the marrow of the bone here. But I'm going to show you what I believe in this phrase, the real meaning of it. For some will say, yes, hell certainly is the terror of all terrors. And listen, I concur with that statement. There is a place called hell. And if there's no place called hell, what are you doing here tonight? If hell does not exist, why would you have a building like this? Why do you not just knock the walls down and extend and get the bowls in and have a social event and coffee mornings and jumble sales? Why do you not do that? Why do you not in that big car park there build a big sports hall and entertain everyone and get everyone in for football? Why don't you do that? I'm telling you now that because there is a hell, it necessitates a mission and carried off. And there is a place called hell. And I'm saying to you now, child of God, the mission is as much for you as it is for the unconverted. There is a place called hell. And if there is a place and there is called hell, a place so foul, a place so real, a place so vile, has to be the most alarming fact in all of God's created universe. It has to be the most alarming truth that would ever fall on a human being's ear, there is a place called hell. There is a place. It exists. The interesting thing is this. We believe in a place called Calvary. In fact, you can go to Israel today and you can literally pinpoint the place called Calvary, the place of the skull. And you could literally pinpoint Mount Moriah, which I believe to be Calvary. And the word that's used is the same word used concerning hell as it does Calvary. When they were come to the place called Calvary. And the word is topos. 
topology, the study of geographic locations. That's where we get our word in the English topography, the study of places and geographical places and locations. And it means a literal place when they were come to the place topos called Calvary. And in the Greek, it's always a literal place. It has an existence. It's not metaphorical. It's not of your imagination. It's a real place. Well, you remember the rich man in hell? And he said, lest they come into this place of torment. It's the same Greek word, topos. And it always means in the Greek, a real and a literal place. It is a location. It exists. God created hell. That's right. All things were created for his glory. Everything that was created was created for his glory. That means heaven. That means hell. That means you and me. All things were created for his glory, for his pleasure. And the Bible says that hell was created. And it's a place for the devil and his angels. And then when you read in your Bible, you'll discover the wicked. And by the way, when you read your Old Testament, your Old Testament, when you see the word wicked, you can always translate it with the word sinner. Always. Because that's the word. That's where we get our word sinner from. And if someone says to you, it's an offense today to call anyone a sinner. God says it. And we have every right to call a man and a woman. And guess what? I call myself that too. A sinner saved by God's grace. So I believe that hell is a real place. And yes, I feel we have gone just a little too far for the meaning of this phrase. Now let me give you what I believe to be the meaning. It is this. Death has just occurred. The soul in a millisecond is leaving the body. And the awful horror. And sense and fear and dread that will overwhelm the soul as it realizes that hell is a real place and they're dropping into hell now and that God is true and the Bible is true. It's that awful realization at death when a person, a man or a woman or a young person die without God's salvation. They realize that hell is a real place. And it's that precise moment. It's that specific time when the sinner dying ungraced without salvation, without precious blood, without forgiveness, without God's mercy. They are dropping literally into hell. It's that precise moment they experience what the Bible calls the king of terrors. The overwhelming fear that hell is for real. And I'm lost. And I'm dropping into the bottomless pit. Into the abyss. And I'm now in the eternal habitations of the lost and the damned. And that moment becomes what the Bible calls an eternal moment. That is that experience goes on. There is no lessening of it. It goes on and on and on and on. It's called the king. For it reigns as that eternal moment in experience forever and forever. And I do believe in my heart that's exactly what this meaning of this phrase is. To experience the king of terrors is that precise moment when the sinner realizes 
too late that hell is a real place, an awful place, a terrible place, a foul place, and yet so hot, so real, so horrible, so terrible. It is the worst kind of experience possible. It's called the king of all terrors. It has not been experienced by any on this earth. You are not going through a living hell. You're not. That's why hell has dropped out of man's thinking today. Hell is used in such a way that it takes away from the biblical meaning. Some people say, if you knew what I was going through, you would understand I'm going through hell. You're not. And other people might say, well, as far as I'm concerned, and they use it in a phrase, and here's another one. They said he ran away from the place. He was like a bat out of hell. That's not true at all of hell. That's not what hell is in the Bible. It's a place of torment. It's a place of eternal punishment. And listen to me, it's reserved. For those who die without Christ. And you say you're very narrow minded. Yes I am. Because the Bible makes it clear. That it's heaven for the saved. And it's hell for those who are not saved. There's black and white. There's no grey areas. And remember this. The color grey is created by man. God created black. God created white. But man created grey by mixing black and white together. And there's no gray areas with God. And God says there's a hell. And listen to me. God cannot lie. And when he speaks. He speaks the truth. And God is telling you the truth. And it's time you believed him. And hell's a real place. But not only do I see the meaning of this phrase. But I want you to consider the misery of this phrase. It's wonderfully brought out in the chapter. And I want to do that for you. You know, it's implied in the phrase itself that misery follows upon the experience of the king of terrors. Because what is meant is the worst kind of dread, the worst kind of horror, the worst kind imaginable, the worst kind of fear. It is the most wicked kind, an evil kind of dread and fear. And this misery consists, first of all, in darkness. If you have your Bible, look with me at verses 5. And 6 of chapter 18. Yea the light of the sinner. Shall be put out. And the spark of his fire shall not shine. The light shall be dark in his tabernacle. And his candle shall be put out. With him. With him. And part of the misery of this phrase is given. By Job's friends. And it consists in darkness. And I hear people saying to me today, you know, whenever I'm in hell, there'll be a great party because you'll not be there. You'll have no conscience to tell me what to do. You'll be no moral governor pointing your finger at me and condemning my lifestyle. When I get to hell, well, I can just then party. And here's what they say. I'll be chief stoker in hell. And guess what? It will be really heaven because there'll be no Christians there. And there'll be no preachers there. And there'll be no people witnessing to me there. And there'll be no mum or dad telling me what to do there. Think of it. And men, what they do now to go under the cloak of darkness to sin in the disco, in the nightclub. You will never find a nightclub. The lights are on full. Never. You'll never find a disco. 
But the lights are always dimmed. Why? To cover up the sin and the evil that's going on in that place. They will never do those things in the broad light of day. They'll not do it. Put the lights on. Everything stops. Everything stops. But in hell there's darkness. And the Bible calls it the blackness of darkness forever. And you sinner tonight may have your little daylight of pleasure in sin. You may have your little spark of your fire of sinful comfort and pleasure. But the Bible says when you die and you experience the king of terrors, then there's darkness. There's darkness. And if the lights were to go out here, and we're not into gimmicks, by the way. And if the lights do go out, don't blame me and say that fella planned that. He's in the gimmicks. He spoke about the lights going out and bang. We were plunged into darkness. Now there are no street lights around here. I notice that if the lights do go out. I don't see any real exit lights here. So you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And if you're a non-smoker, you're in greater trouble. For you have no lighter nor matches. And you just have to feed your way out. And it's rank first, I understand. So I go first and you can follow me. My face is bright red. So I'd be the little glow to get you out of the place. But you know what it's like? Total darkness. I was in a meeting, by the way, and I was preaching and bang, the lights did go out. And there was an electrical fault. And as I was in full flow, bang, no lights, everything stopped. I tell you, there was a silence. You ever th thought of a silence? You could cut through it. Just seemed to settle. I just hadn't a clue what to do. And suddenly we began to focus just a wee bit because there were some exit lights and they gave a wee bit of light. And everything was silent. I didn't even know where my notes or anything were. And I didn't know what to say after. And suddenly the lights come on. And the light believe the Lord gave me help. And I simply said, do you know, if the Lord had to come. Because that's how quickly it would happen. Where would your soul be? And there was a girl in that meeting came under conviction. The fear of God fell upon her. And you near think we had planned it. But we didn't, by the way. And I trust the lights do not go out tonight or I'm in trouble. But I'll tell you this. That girl came to the Lord and she got saved. And she's still going on with God today. And I wonder tonight, if you were to die, where would your soul be? Because the king of terrors awaits those who die without Christ. And the, that misery of this phrase consists in darkness. The Bible teaches that. The light of the sinner shall be put out and the spark of his fire shall be put out with him. His candle will go with him. The little light that he walks in, the little spark of the fires of his sinful comfort and pleasure, they're all put out and he enters into eternal darkness. That is, you'll not see anyone else in hell. There'll be no moving from chamber to chamber. There'll be no going from one place to another. The Bible tells me that in hell there is darkness. Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord has removed his light. And then when the Lord takes away his light, there's nothing but darkness. Darkness. And furthermore, this misery not only consists in darkness, but if you look with me at verses 7 and 9, it consists in deception. Look at verse 7. That's a very interesting verse. Deception. Self-deception of that Look what it says in verse 7. The steps of his strength shall be straightened and his own counsel shall cast him down. Do you ever think what that means? Have you ever read that? You maybe read it now. Do you understand what that means? 
His own counsel shall cast him down. What does the Bible mean when it says that? I'll tell you exactly what it means. His own counsel. When you die without Christ and you enter in to the king of terrors, his own counsel will cast him down. His own counsel consists in the years that he has told himself all is well. I don't need to be saved. You preachers preaching there, I just come out to keep you happy. I just listen to get by. But I'm all right. I'm as good as the next person you know. And I don't believe that I'm the sinner the Bible tells me that I am. I haven't gone into prison. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen or frauded or cheated. I haven't told lies. I haven't done this or done that. And as far as I'm concerned, and I see so many people in this world, I have never, ever done this, that or the other. And his own counsel is this. I've been baptized. Therefore, I'm Christianized. I've been confirmed by vows that were made at my baptism on my behalf by my godparents and being baptized, being confirmed. That's the counsel I give my soul. And I don't listen to you preachers ranting and raving and raising your voices as if there's no tomorrow. His own counsel that he rested in all his life when he really needed that counsel to lift him up and to hold him up, cast him down into hell. Think of it. This misery consists in darkness. His light is put out. It consists in deception. Not only does it consist in self-deception, but satanic deception. Here it is in the Bible. Look at verse 9, for instance. Look what it says. It says there in verse 9, the jinn, that means the trap, shall take him by the heel and the robber shall prevail against him. The robber. That's who's behind self-deception, you know. The devil. And you know what the devil does? Here's what he does. Now, if you haven't been listening, will you listen now? Here's what the devil does. He takes his mind and he works it into your mind. So that you're beginning to believe what he says. You're beginning to trust in his counsel. And the devil says, listen, even if you know you need to be saved. And you say, well, preacher, there's nobody can convince me. I believe it with all my heart. I know I need to be saved. I know there's a heaven. I fear that awful place called hell. I would not like to die right now. I'm not right with God. But the devil works his mind in yours. And he tells you something, doesn't he? He robs you of the opportunity to get saved. And he says, don't get saved tonight. Leave it till tomorrow night, sure. And he will make sure life is hectic tomorrow. He will make sure you have the worst day that you've ever had this year so as you don't get back to the meeting. And the robber takes you down. Do you see that? The meaning of this phrase, king of terrors, is hell, the eternal moment, and then the misery of it. 
consists in darkness. It consists in deception. And if you look with me, it consists in despair. In verses 11 through 14, and I'll have to hurry on here, but look at verse 11, for instance. Here's an interesting phrase. Look at verse 11. It says, terror shall make him afraid on every side and shall drive him to his feet. Now let me give you not only the meaning, but an illustration of what that literally means. Terrors shall make him afraid on every side. No matter where you turn, when you're dropping into hell, there's nothing but torment. You cannot run from a lion, but you'll meet the bear. You cannot run from some monster, but you'll meet another. You cannot run from one fear or dread and turn aside, but some terror will meet you in hell. Here's what it says. It shall drive him to his feet. And you might be able to resist men, You might even be able now by your willful rejection of Christ to resist the gospel. But the Bible tells me you'll be driven to your feet. I'll give you an example of that. As a young person, we were traveling from a disco where we walked and the police were escorting us through a Catholic area. And that disco, there was quite a number of young Protestants going to it. Could have been upwards of 300. And the only way to get to that disco was by walking through a predominantly Republican and Catholic area. In doing so, there was quite a bit of trouble. My brother David got arrested. And so I thought I would be the big man. I'm coming past Lurgan Police Station. The time whenever it had the big grills all over it on a tunnel like a cage to get into the front door, I decided I would go in and get my brother out of that police station. Never forget it. Walked straight in through the tunnel. The boy let me in. Came up to the desk. The duty sergeant was standing there. They always say about the policeman being over six foot tall. Well, this guy was. He was six foot tall sitting down. Never mind standing up. And I walked in with his shoulders back. And he says, what do you want? And I says, I'm here to get my brother. He says, who's he? I says, David Martin. He's been arrested. I'm here to get him out. And he bounced over that desk. This is how you should deal with young people, by the way. He bounced over that desk. And with one hand, just like our brother Graham here, just with one single hand, he lifted me by the scruff of the neck and he lifted me off my feet. And no matter what I did by kicking and screaming and trying to get back into that police station, here's what he did. He drove me to my feet down that cage. The other uh, policeman opened the, the grill. All the boys were waiting outside for me to bring my brother out and he fired me out into the street. And I'm telling you, I could not resist him. There's nothing I could have done. And that's exactly what that phrase means. Driven to his feet. It's as though God's justice gets a hand on the soul. And drives that sinner into hell. And you cannot resist it. You know what it's like? A little child of two. If you've got a child of two, you might notice a little bit difficult. And there they are screaming in your face, wanting to do something. And all you have to do is hold them back. And no matter what, unless you're an absolute wimp, You should not be overcome by a two-year-old child. You say, you don't know my child. Well, I've been through the terrible twos with three of ours and they can be difficult. But I'll tell you this, they would not overcome you. Surely you could drive them upstairs to bed if you wanted to. I hope there's no social workers in here. I'm not advocating in any way that you manhandle two-year-olds. It's just being taped as well, so I'm in trouble. So why be gentle with your children, love them, the dears that they are. But I'll tell you this, they, they will not resist you. Well, the sinner cannot resist the Lord. 
and the despair consists in him being driven to his feet. Aye, and he rooted out. Look at verse 14. I'll go through this quickly for time has beaten me. Look at verse 14. His confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle. The completeness of his misery rooted out. That means every single thing. Everything that has given him a grip on this sinful world and his sinful pleasure, he'll be literally rooted out, roots and all, never to return, never to feed his soul and nourish his sinful pleasures and driven mercilessly into the king of terrors, the experience of hell itself. And furthermore, it's also this misery consists in destruction. Look at verse 17. It says his name or his remembrance shall perish from the earth, and he shall have no name in the street. That is, he will be forgotten. And that's what hell is, a place where God has forgotten to be gracious. And it consists in departure. Look at verse 18, and I'll finish with another point. Look at verse 18. It says there, he shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. That's the end of the sinner. Look what it says in verse 18, unless you've missed it. It says he shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of this world. If you want the original Hebrew, and listen, I borrow my knowledge, believe me. And I'm not here to impress anyone. And I mean that. I'm not. I'm not educated. But what I have learned is this. And I've borrowed my, borrowed my knowledge from others. And I'm going to share with you what I have gleaned and what I have been given. They tell us. Those that are the experts in the Hebrew language, they tell us that this phrase literally means they shall chase him out of this world. And you know, in the New Testament, you have the equivalent in the Greek. Do you remember the Bible speaks about the rich farmer who laid up his goods for many years and said, soul, take thine ease, eat, drink and be merry. That has many days and years to come. Enjoy the good of it. And God said, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Well, the literal Greek means this. This night they shall require their soul of thee. And I ask the question then, who are the they? And I have the answer straight from the Bible. In Isaiah 14, I read of a man called Belshazzar. And the Bible tells me of Belshazzar, the night the king was slain, as he blasphemed God using those holy vessels and not honouring the Lord or giving God glory, the Bible tells me that hell beneath, hell beneath calls for thee, waits for thee. I'll paraphrase that little passage. It literally says that hell from beneath is waiting your arrival. It's as though hell said that night of Belshazzar. Where is he? Those that he had done to death and put in that place were waiting on him. And the fiends of hell and the demons of hell that are there now were waiting on the sinner. And I believe in my heart that at the precise moment that the sinner experienced the king of terrors, the ghastly clutches of the demons and imps of hell, and we don't know what created beings have been cast into there. We don't know what monsters were created when Lucifer, son of the morning, fell. And God created him. 
But all I know is this hell is populated with fiends and demons and ghastly creatures. They terrorize. And I'm convinced that they, because the angels came and took Lazarus from the rich man's gate and brought him into Abraham's bosom, created angels. And those angels that fell with Lucifer put their fiendish claws upon the souls of lost sinners and bring their prey into the caverns of the damned. There's one final thought. I'll use it as a conclusion for my time is gone. The meaning of this phrase, the misery of this phrase, but could I share with you the message you need to hear in the light of this phrase? Because, my friend, you need to escape the king of terrors. And how can I, a guilty lost soul bound for hell, escape such a place or an experience as the king of terrors? Well, I'll tell you how. Because there's another king. He's the king of glory. And he's the king of grace. He's the king of love. And he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace and he rules and he reigns over the king of terrors. He has defeated the powers of darkness. He has by virtue of the creator God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's who I'm talking about. The blessed second person of the Godhead who became a true man and entered into our humanity, who lived a sinlessly perfect life, who did no sin for in him was no sin and he could not sin. Yet he became sin. That is, he gave himself to be accountable for the sin of all his believing people. And the king of glory and of grace left heaven. And the king of kings came down to earth. He became a babe born in Bethlehem. He lived a sinlessly perfect life. He gave himself by the divine counsel and determinate foreknowledge of God to the sorrows and sufferings of Calvary. And there the king of glory and the king of grace defeated the king of terrors. Heaven's king came down to earth to save a poor sinner like you. And on the cross of Calvary, the king of love suffered, bled, and died as your substitute. He took your place. He died for you. He paid sin's price that will bring us in to the experience of the king of terrors, that we might experience the king of grace and love of righteousness and peace for all eternity. And on the cross he offered to God the Father that one great sacrifice for sins forever. And now the Bible points us to another king, the king of love, my shepherd is. Heaven's king, who came down to earth, and oh, he is mighty to save. Tell me, do you know him tonight? Is he your saviour? Have you ever trusted him? If you were to die right now, man, woman, young person, boy or girl, if you were to die right now, be honest with yourself. Where would your soul be? Heaven or hell? Saved or lost? Glory or despair? Tell me. Are you right with God? Well, tonight you can be. If you repent of your sin and come by faith to Christ and receive him tonight as your saviour, You'll never experience the king of terrors. You'll have eternal life, eternal light, eternal joy, heaven and peace forevermore. All because of Calvary. All because of his cross. Will you not come and trust heaven's king and God's appointed saviour? 
the only Savior for sinners and the only way to heaven, Jesus Christ alone. Will you take him? Will you trust him now? If you say, well, I'm not sure about this. I need to know more. Well, listen, we'll still take time. If we haven't done and given enough time, we'll still take more time just to open the Bible and show you how you can be saved. But please don't go away without Christ. Speak to us. You don't have to speak to me. You can speak to some other Christian friend here, some person you know. And listen, we believe in God's sovereignty. You can go out those doors under conviction, but you can come back in again. But preacher, what happens if I get into my car and get home? Have I missed my opportunity? No, you haven't. You can even lift the phone and phone someone you know. But get the matter sorted tonight and come. My brother was singing. This could be God's final call. If you but knew, friend, God's final call. Don't miss it. But come and seek the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank thee for thy presence already. We thank thee, Lord, for those who have listened so intently to the preaching of thy word. We thank thee for the gospel of our salvation. We praise thee for thine only begotten and well-beloved Son. We thank thee, our Father, for his death as the substitute for sinners. We thank thee for the precious blood that he shed to put away the guilt of all sin and give us peace with God and the peace of God. And we pray, Lord, that this night the Holy Spirit will work, bringing glory and honour to Christ and the salvation of the lost souls. We pray for any who perhaps are cold at heart and backslidden. Lord, they don't have the assurance that Jesus is mine. They may be lacking in assurance tonight. They don't really know if they're saved, have questions, doubts about the matter. Lord, let them settle it tonight, once and for all. Get that matter dealt with. Lord, answer prayer now. Lord, part us in thy fear. And as we take our leave, grant that we may leave this house, those of us who were saved, prayerfully and very carefully pondering the things we have heard. And loving Father, go after and chase after the unconverted and bring them savingly to Christ. We ask these things now, believing in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Thank you.